This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the future with Dan and Paul. Okay, welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. And this is a special podcast episode because it's our first book. Yeah, this is something we're going to be doing more of in the future. That's right. Our plan right now is to do two movies and then a book. And we realize that it's not 100% fair to some of these stories to only do the movie versions, but you know, life is short. Mm-hmm. We're only doing books that haven't been already turned into movies. That's right. But a book can also give an opportunity to do more detailed world building. That's true. I think that this Devil on My Back by Monica Hughes, which is the book we're doing today, is a good example of that. So I'm really excited to do this book. This is probably one of the first ever science fiction books I read and was really important to me when I was a kid. I remember finding it on uh, Auntie Rob's shelf. Oh, nice. Yeah. And Monica Hughes is a Canadian science fiction writer, and she was my favorite writer in the world when I was 10. She also wrote Keeper of the Isis Light and Crisis on Conchelf 10, Space Trap, all of which I read and loved. Oh, yeah. I remember Space Trap. I, I love that this actually did come out in 1984. That's true. Yeah, 1984. Although it doesn't share that much with George Orwell's. Maybe it does. Maybe We'll talk about that, perhaps. It's so like iconic, like, I think, I feel like it, you know, there is definitely some influence of this book for me, like, uh, just the, the, the cover is very sort of iconic, you know, it's got the, the sort of futurist, futuristic looking kid, it's got the, the dome, which is obviously very important. Yeah. It's also featured on the cover of our podcast. Right, right. And the typeface for our podcast is based on this book. So for both of us, I think this is a very iconic book cover. We're both thinking of the one specific book. (laughs) Yeah, that our aunt had. We're brothers, by the way. Yes. I've been thinking about this book like pretty regularly since I read it when I was 10, especially in the last 10 years since smartphones have come out. I've thought about it all the time, basically. Mm. Something about the imagery of this book is so strong. And, and the kind of horror of it really gets under your skin. Devil in my pocket. I wrote that down somewhere. <laughs> so the devil on your back in this case is a information accessing device. And so that's kind of the theme of this book is how information access can be used to control you. Right. To limit your world as well as to expand your world. Right. So in each episode, we talk about the story. We talk about the plausibility scariness, how would we do, and hope for the future. Mm -hmm. So let's start with Devil on My Back. The story starts with Tommy Bent, uh, who is uh, our main character. He's the son of a prominent lord in uh, this place called Ark One. 
he's 14 years old and growing up in this dome city as a lord and it's access day meaning it's the day in which you get access to more info packs than you used to be able to have he and his fellow 14 year olds go into a room and where they are fitted with these packs that plug into the back of their neck so everyone is bald and has bad posture right because of the the weight of these packs on the back of their neck right and so it's a process of gradually getting trained to carry more and more info packs they seem to sort of stack on top of each other but some of them have a bad reaction to this and sort of freak out too much information or something but tommy is okay and and his friend den right so that means that he gets to continue being a lord yeah, it's basically if you if you freak out or if you if your brain can't take all this extra information, then that's it for you. You're pretty much uh, relegated to being a slave. So various people kind of fall off along the way, and until it's just him and his friend more or less left, who are destined to be lords. The teacher, the guy who's setting him up, says, "Oh, you guys can go uh, and experience the dream." which is quite interesting. Yeah, they have a, a virtual reality adventure outside the dome. Sort of him and his friend, Den, they experience this sort of wilderness outside of the dome and kind of a survival, a cool survival experience. Right. It's sort of a video game, but you're, it's virtual reality kind of thing, plugging into the packs in their thing. I, I think, doesn't it plug into the same port? Yep, plugs into their neck socket. And they clean a fish and whatnot, have a nice little adventure. Because he was successful in taking up all this extra information, uh, he is going to be promoted to being a full-fledged lord. Yeah, there's, there's a big banquet happening. But this big ceremony is the perfect opportunity to have a slave revolt. That's right. Someone bursts in saying the slaves are, are revolting. Slaves are revolting. Somebody dryly says, they certainly are. I was trying to avoid that. There's a big kerfuffle, almost a riot that breaks out among all the workers and lords. And Tom, Tommy gets separated from everybody. Right. And he sort of try, is trying to get back home to his place. And he kind of gets swept along in this big riot of people until he ends up in a uh, area that is an area where the slaves are, are in control. Luckily, one of the slaves that he meets is his slave from his own his own house. Right, and is sympathetic to him. She she hides him in the garbage chute, uh, and then there's a big, you know, he can just sort of hear and see a little bit of what's going on, all sorts of noise and excitement and people shooting back and forth. And then the guards who, you know, are gonna are breaking up this slave riot are about to breach and so they throw in a bunch of sort of sleeping gas to knock everybody out so they can come in and uh, arrest all the slaves. Of course, not knowing that he's in the garbage chute, like hanging on with his fingers. <laughs> right. And so the this gas comes and knocks him out, you know, or, or at least makes him dizzy. And so he falls backwards down the garbage chute and down into this sort of um, sewage system below the city and gets washed out of the city and in, in, out into the, the real world that he's never actually been in before. Right. He ends, ends up on this piece of land, which he realizes is an island after walking around 
So he's kind of trapped on an island in the middle of this rushing river. He tries to access his packs. How do you cross a rushing river? It doesn't help him very much. Right. It like explains, you know, how boats work and stuff. And he's like, it's not useful right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he does get on a log or something to escape, right? Yeah. He, he works his way over with a little kind of makeshift raft. And so he's walking along and uh, he eats some berries and they're very tasty. And then he walks along more and he sees some other berries. And he, so he eats those. And those turn out to be not so tasty. Yeah, he poisons himself uh, and is only rescued by a group of humans living out in the forest. Yeah. We quickly discovers are actually escaped slaves. Right. And they're, they're so and they have set up this little community not that far from uh from the, from the dome. dome, you know, maybe uh, a couple of days walk from the dome. Uh-huh. Uh, and they have just a, a little town almost. They have buildings and all kinds of stuff. He first meets the girl, Rowan, mm -hmm. who's, uh, I believe, a teenager like himself. Right, except she is um, she's not an escaped slave. She's actually was born outside the dome. Oh, I missed that. Cool. At first, he's sort of his inherent uh, bias against slaves is difficult to get over. Yeah, we should explain that he's a little shit in general. Yeah. You know, it's sort of Joffrey from uh, Game of Thrones. He's right, kind of that's in a that, good comparison. In that area. <laughs> Maybe not maybe not actually like psychopathic, but he tries to escape back to his rightful home during the big feast, even though people are being really remarkably nice to him. He just waits till they're all asleep and leaves. And they catch up with him? Yeah, so they well they yeah, they catch up with him. He after he walks for a while he realizes that he's been following the wrong river entirely and he's actually farther away than he thought he was. Right. So yeah, he's learning a lot of respect for sort of wood lore. But yeah, they do catch up with them and they bring him back. They decide to do this thing called the... Um, a sharing. Where they basically talk about the actual history of the world, the real history of the world. Yeah. Tommy realizes that the history that he has been told and the history that he can access because he's got these data packs on is not true. Yeah, and that Arc 1 is built on a lie. Right. He's so shocked that he wanders out wants to even kill himself. Well, he and, and he pulls out all of these packs. He pulls off all of his info packs. And including, there's there's the info packs, but the first pack that you get and the pack that everybody has, aside from slaves, is called the life pack. And that's just has stuff about like when you should get up in the morning and, you know, what to do during the day. And, and he right. pulls that out too. Right. And so he doesn't have anything, which causes him to basically lose his memory and kind of go insane for a little while. Yeah, it dissociates. He finally sort of gets to himself, and then he starts living with these escaped slaves and learning sort of woods craft. I, I think that like Rowan, but speaking of Game of Thrones, could easily have been telling him, you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> he gets closer with Rowan, and they start uh, hanging out more. And another slave shows up, washed down the river. Yeah. We can refer to a stargazer. Much older slave. And they start hanging out together. So the three of them, yeah, yeah. Tommy and Roman and Stargazer, who he get everyone chooses a new name when they come to this village. And uh, Stargazer really likes the stars because he never got to see them because he shoveled crap. Yeah, <laughs> all day. Again, part of Tommy's education. He somehow never thought about the people shoveling crap all day. Right. 
and he tells him about the story of the failed revolt. But then at some point, Stargazer finds out that Tomi was Lord. Right. And so, yeah, tries to kick his ass. And tries, yeah, tries to kill him. And they kind of fight for, they fight for a little bit. But anyway, they make up at, at some point. They make up, but this uh, incident really shows Tomi, he really starts thinking about this, this idea of his identity as a Lord. And he realizes that he is in a unique position of all the people in this village. You know, they're all escaped slaves. If they go back to Arc 1, they'll be imprisoned or killed or something terrible will happen to them. Whereas he could actually go back to Arc 1. And then when a crisis happens in their little uh, village, when one of their only metal tools, a saw, breaks, and Tomi, you know, realize, sees how precarious their position is. So even though he feels very at home there now, he decides to make the sacrifice and go back to the dome. It's been about four months or so at this point, right? Uh, no, at like this that. point, it's been nine months. Nine months, okay. Yeah. So he heads back to the dome and he has to go through this very difficult crawl across the hydroelectric dam, I believe, to get inside. Right. And then he ends up inside ready to steal whatever he can. And then he gets captured. Right. By the guards. So we'll leave that there. And that's right at the end of the book. Plausibility. In this segment, we talk about how this world came about, and how it maintains itself. I have some uh, text here. Unlike some of the things that we've looked at, this has a, a very clear description of exactly how we got to this point. Right. And I have some passages here. I'll just read these. Lay them on me. All right. In the beginning was the age of oil. Then there was no more oil. The Arab states collapsed with the last of the oil in 2005 AD. Then followed the age of confusion. There was starvation and people died. There were riots for food and for jobs and more people died. Governments were no longer able to keep order. In the cities, the old diseases began to come back. Diseases almost unrecognized. It was no longer safe to live in cities, but families living on farms were not safe either because as soon as food distribution within the cities broke down, gangs began to sweep the countryside looking for what they could take. Radio and TV stations were wrecked during the riots or the fires that followed, so there was no communication. Each small part of the nation had to make its own rules and its own plan for survival. One such plan was Arc 1. It began at the university. The professors said, We must save knowledge, as the monks saved it during the Dark Ages in Old Europe. We will ride out the storm and preserve in computers the whole knowledge of our culture until the age of confusion is over and we can begin to rebuild. Everyone worked together, secretly digging down into the mountain, an underground city, a kilometer in diameter. Everyone helped to erect the dome and circle the city with an electric fence. Then came the darkest night in Arc 1's history. This is the slaves, by the way, telling this history that's been passed down. Mm -hmm. The darkest night in Arc 1's history, the shameful night when a small group of scientists decided that it would be better if they could spend their entire energies on scientific studies, leaving those who were perhaps less successful to the work of looking after the city. They divided the population into what later came to be known as lords and workers. No choice was offered, no vote taken. They designed the info packs and grafted them all onto all the people of Arc 1. What a gift to be linked to the central computer to access all the knowledge of Earth. And that's an ironic gift, as we, right. we find out. 
so yeah what what do you think of this it's uh i mean it's it's a very uh aside from the fact that it happens in 2005 it's uh yeah it's it's it seems like a pretty plausible thing that could happen i mean it's yeah it's broad strokes but it's Based on, I mean, in 1984, that was right after the oil crisis, right? In the late 70s? Right. So that would have been on people's minds. There's sort of the two areas of plausibility, I guess. There's the the outside community and there's the actual ARC-1 itself. I mean, I, I think ARC-1, some of the stuff in it is maybe not quite as plausible as it could be. Did you understand why Arc 1 had to be the way that it is as far as like a dome that's buried underground? Uh, I, they, I don't think anybody, they, they talk about sort of why it's a dome buried ground stuff. I mean, I'm assuming it's just because that was a it was sort of protected and... But protected against what? Protected against humans? Yeah, probably. Against looters and against uh, whatever the forces of bad stuff happening. I see my you know in my notes this is 140 years where ah. um, Arc One has been in operation. Interesting. So I mean it's it's entirely possible that the stuff that it was built to protect them from is no longer even an issue. Right. There's probably you know roving bands of whatever. It's not built to withstand an army, or maybe to be hidden from an army. I'm not sure, but. It's more like scattered threats. Right. You can really visualize this idea that, you know, it was all the people, you know, from like university or from some some group, you know, a whole ton of people all got together, you know, working towards this purpose of building Arc 1 and preserving knowledge. And then something changed, right? Right. And there's this great turn. Yeah. The, the whole... Uh, Everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Animal farm. We're doing all the thinking, so we need the best apples. Right. And this idea that, that you know, once you, you, know, you get everybody has the data packs so they can access the central computer and stuff, that's all really great. But they gloss over the idea that the information that people can access through the data packs can be manipulated. Exactly. I mean, it's quite interesting because it's that they talk about that the, you know, the, like the workers, every worker thinks that he's the most important guy in the ARC-1, that that's actually right. part of part of the sort of programming or part of the information he's getting from the packs is that uh, basically, you know, every worker think not doesn't think that they're a lord, but thinks that they're sort of really important and is really happy with their job, too, right. which is quite interesting. Yeah, like when he talks to the gardener and it's basically the gardener's like, yeah, this is the coolest thing I could possibly be doing. Mm -hmm. And that's not what his info pack is telling him. His info pack is telling him it's best to be a lord. Right. It's an interesting idea. You know, if you are going to set up a society like that, I guess it's better if you make everybody happy about where they are. But (laughs) well, except for the slaves. Right. So that's the that's the whole the fly in the ointment, I guess is that not everybody can accept the info packs that right. there's a thousand people you know, when they first did this a thousand people could not accept the info packs right and guess what it stayed steady at a thousand 
Yeah. Because they realize that slaves help the world to function. They have a thousand slaves and two thousand soldiers, or two thousand. So, so they, we're getting into how it maintains itself, by the way. Yeah. So they're they're very uh, paranoid about sort of slave uprisings, I guess. Right. So yeah, two thousand soldiers, one thousand slaves. The total population is uh, is twelve thousand people. Right. That's what's really chilling and kind of believable about this particular dystopia is just the sheer amount of like ugly force that's necessary to keep order. Mm-hmm. And that that is is nicely hidden away from the lords. Like like Tommy never really thought about this before the slave uprising. That's really important. This idea that there are the same number of slaves now as there were a hundred years ago, and that right. he realizes that his these uh, two friends of his that failed in their training, like they their brains did not accept the packs, that that might have been not just a fluke that maybe certain people are are actually deliberately messed with so that they become slaves yeah that they're selected to be slaves by the by his dad actually the the yeah. ruler of everything he finds he also finds out that his dad is actually the one in charge of everything which he didn't realize yeah he thought the lords were all kind of ruled themselves so this is another aspect of the world that that is hidden from him Mm-hmm. That that there really is this one person in charge of everything. Although in the end, it turns out that the computer is really in charge of everything. Right. This is, it turns out to be on some level sort of computer gone mad story, just very subtly. And the, yeah, and this idea that you know obviously it was originally put there to preserve knowledge, uh, as they talk about you know preserve knowledge for uh, as as the monks did in ancient times for sort of after the cataclysm is done. It's clear that they, you know, they they have no particular impetus to leave the dome, that they are just continuing on in their existence because it's comfortable that way. You know, there's a team of lords that are working on doing research and stuff, trying to figure out when they have accumulated all the knowledge that is necessary. Right, for when the time is right, they, yeah, exactly. they make they're making their plans for when we're going to reemerge gloriously. Oh, it's right. never going to happen. It is. I like this. It says. A dozen lords are working on the problem as to whether learning is a finite or infinite series. <laughs> oh, so they're at the point, yeah. So I mean, which is of, that's pretty satirical, isn't it? That yeah, making it clear that the that the lords are basically just futzing around. They're right, not really this, doing anything useful. This is a satirical point about academia. I mean, like my life, I'm a scientist, and I'm working on something a little bit abstract and incredibly specialized. I'm like, yeah, someday this is going to save us all, probably. Maybe. So that's how the Dome Society maintains itself. And yeah, this, it's one of the ones that rings true to me in the sense that it's built on violence and built on a group of people being systematically oppressed. But then the people who are actually doing the the violence and oppression are almost deliberately setting it up so that they don't know about it. And I mean, the, the value of the info packs, this idea that they're preserving knowledge and stuff, when, when Tomy actually gets out into the real world, info packs are completely useless. Like, I don't think he ever gets one piece of useful information <laughs> out of his info packs. I would yeah. have thought that they would at least have like, you know, here's all the different berries that are edible and these ones <laughs> yeah. aren't edible. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk about plausibility. Let's talk about the technology because it's very fascinating to see this 
perspective from 1984 on information technology. Like, it was impossible for Monica Hughes to see how much the world would change in this time. Right. But basically, it seemed like all of the info packs, if you max out your info packs, you have about as much information as, like, the Encarta CD-ROM would give you. Right. You're not even, like, Wikipedia levels. No, Wikipedia is, like, a thousand times more amazing than anything they have access to. Wikipedia alone. So I decided, like, I had this intuition that the real internet is way better than this. Uh, even when it comes to woodcraft, like there's actually a, an enormous amount of woodcraft on the internet, sort right. of ironically. Uh, so I typed in into Google, how do you cross a fast river when you're unable to swim and there is no bridge, which is the query that he gives. Uh, actually, devil on my back came up. <laughs> so I tried it Read without this quotes. this book, devil on my back. <laughs> I tried it without quotes. And yeah, I instantly got a whole bunch of results for how to cross a fast river. It's interesting that even though she imagined them as being these big, heavy things you had to carry around in backpacks, it still was much less impressive than what we have now. Mm -hmm. So the higher status you are in this world, the more packs you have on your back, which is interesting, and the, the more you slouch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we talked about doing this book that has never been turned into a movie. Uh, you know, you cannot see the young adult dystopian movie where the main character is pale, fat, under-muscled, his shoulders are already are learning the stoop necessary to support the weight of his packs. It was not a beautiful body, <laughs> is, the, yeah. is the actual... I, I'm just picturing the scriptwriter crossing out the stage direction and writing, yeah. it was a beautiful body. <laughs> Check out yeah. the latest uh, Disney Channel shows to find out which beautiful body it'll be. Scariness. I mean, this is one of those things where it's like, you know, if you're in the society, not scary at all. Because, if you're a lord. And or if you're even if you're a worker, all the stuff, Dan, you're feeling you're doing great. Everything's fun. Life is good. Everything is awesome. But uh, obviously to the outside observer or if you're a slave, it's horrible. <laughs> it's this sealed off air conditioned world and like, it mentions that nobody hugs. Lords don't hug each other. They don't even touch each other. Right. It's all about this knowledge. As it says here, he's like, I kind of want to be hugged. And then he thinks, well, wait a minute. I don't need all that stuff. I have knowledge. And knowledge is power. And power is all the happiness I need. Right. It's quite dark. So the part, a scene that I remember really vividly from when I was a kid is that very beginning scene when... They're all getting fitted with their packs on access day. And if I'm reading it right, only two out of the eight kids actually make it through and become lords. One by one, they freak out and like have to have it ripped out of their head at different stages. They, some people's brains just can't handle the knowledge at different levels. And that, right. was, that was very vivid that these, these people were all chums and now some of them just are reduced to like, going berserk right and from information overload and some of those people i guess will become workers and some will become slaves yeah uh and so yeah so this as he says to be turned into a nameless unfamilied slave for the rest of his miserable life all memory of access knowledge and of being a lord wiped out to be a number mm. um, but he doesn't have a real idea of how savage life is as a slave like he didn't know that people actually that slaves got whipped sometimes 
Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, all of that kind of info is definitely hidden. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess that information is actually hidden or whether it's just like he never bothered to access it because it didn't seem important. No, it's not in the it's not in there. I'm sure. Right. Like what he gets is a propaganda about the city. Right. And so like he only learns from uh, Stargazer about the whipping about because he has whip marks on his back about um, the fact that they're not allowed to have babies and that one of their babies, one has a baby somehow, uh, despite that they inject them with birth control. And uh, the lords just take the baby and raise it. Right. And he talks about the aftermath of the slave rebellion, which is really horrifying. Where they just kind of locked them in a room for a long period of time. Definitely pretty nasty uh, in terms of, yeah, very scary. I mean, when you get out of the city, the scariness is a much more sort of understandable kind of scariness. I mean, there's the scariness of being by a bear or starving. As we talked about before, the slave community is accepting to a fault, I would say. The only, the only thing I'd be scared of is of being forced to participate in folk dancing. <laughs> so there's another type of scariness that I think this book touches on that has also haunted me which is that the access to the information and how that can kind of be very seductive mm. um, and, and the constant access to the information. Like I remember being so reminded of this when I first heard about somebody having a cell phone that could communicate with the internet. I was like, oh no, this is not good. If we can carry around internet devices with us all the time, we'll never have like a moment where we, we're just like completely alone and with our thoughts. <laughs> Like, there'll always be something to look up. And Tom, Tommy has this moment where he loses his info packs. And, for example, Tommy learned to live without the constant whisper inside his head telling him what to do. There were times when he missed it, when the silence inside was almost too much to bear and he had to rush outside to struggle with himself. Now, that really sounds like somebody is, uh, who's deprived of their smartphone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you When you live in Canada and then travel to the United States, data becomes very expensive just because of how the cell phone plans work. And so it's like you've lost this superpower. <laughs> yeah, not even a superpower, but a basic power. You feel less powerful than baseline. You feel like you have an actual handicap. You know, if you, when you don't have internet access for whatever reason, you know, I always have the, the, the sort of cycle of like, oh, I don't have any internet access. Oh, that sucks. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just, you know, I don't, I don't need to look on websites. I'll just check my email. Oh, right. No, email. Right. <laughs> oh, well, I'll just, I'll just look at my RSS feeds. Oh, right. No, that won't work. Yeah. No internet. Oh, well, I'll just settle for Wikipedia. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You realize that everything is actually. Everything internet. in your life comes through one little tube. Yeah. And of course, you know, the powers that be control that tube, like a handful of companies and governments determine everything that comes through there. Yeah. I mean, it's this idea that when you put your faith in a company or a service or whatever that service that you're giving that service a lot of power over your over you yeah it connects to the plausibility thing right where it's you know scarier than like the host where obviously aliens taking over people is scary but this is scariness in a very sort of real way that you're sort of like oh huh I guess that kind of already happened. <laughs> yeah, it already happened. We didn't really, we didn't really uh, 
talk about it too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I was thinking, yeah, this thing is going to rule my life. And of course it has completely immediately. My smartphone is always with me and I check it at inappropriate times. Hope for the future. So let's change it up a little bit and talk about hope for the future at this point, because I want to get to the ending of this, which is really cool. Yeah, so this is uh, incredibly hopeful. We, we find out that his father was the, is sort of the controller of the whole thing. Uh, and so, you know, we have this vision of his father as being kind of this Machiavellian force that is influencing the whole of Arc 1. And it becomes clear in the last chapter, when once Tomi gets back into the Arc 1, that, well, his father is in control, but he's actually very sympathetic to the, the escaped slaves. He has actually been sort of working within the system to attempt to bring Arc 1 back to its original purpose of sort of being an arc, to preserve knowledge and to eventually open up and use the knowledge and the equipment that was stored in the Ark to make the outside world a better place. Yeah, so he takes Tomi aside after he's been arrested and says, hey, I'm not mad at you. In fact, this is a really good thing that's happened. It helps with my plan, which is to give you a new job, which is designing dreams, designing these virtual reality experiences for people. Mm -hmm. And he's going to have him design, not only is he going to let him turn a blind eye to him sending all this equipment back to the slave village materials equipment food whatever uh seeds is the other thing that's really important so you can seal them into tupperware containers and send them out the exhaust system right and so but his father says that you're going to be designing these new vr games and they're going to make become like a transition make people hunger to leave the dome change people's minds mm-hmm. and then and while we're doing that he's also doing stuff with like you know, making sure that nobody comes after the slaves after they escape and also making situations where the save slaves can't escape because they're because he knows that the slaves are the ones who are actually know what's going on. Slaves are the free ones. Uh, right, because the lords are also being brainwashed by their info packs. Right. To think this is all the, the best of all worlds. It, it does seem like his father could be doing more. Yeah, so in the year that we know about, essentially. There's also been this slave rebellion that was suppressed extremely brutally. There's been, uh, you know, the baby being taken away. People are still being whipped. Like, what kind of reforms is he actually Im implementing here? It seems like his father is, uh, is definitely sort of working to get rid of this thing, but he doesn't seem to be... Yeah, he could probably be working on it better. <laughs> like... I mean, in a way, he really is handicapped by this thing that we all have, which is if you're really comfy, you it's easy to tell yourself stories about right. how you're doing you're doing everything possible. I'm splitting the recycling into three bins. Right. Uh, I'm doing my part while you're totally benefiting from the system. So I'm a little suspicious of this premise, though, that you can make great virtual reality stories. I mean, this is a, this is a storyteller telling us this. You can make stories that are so compelling that will actually cause people to get up and go and change the world and get up and leave their comfortable dome. Like, so say he starts making these new dreams that are more like realistic versions of the outside. Well, what's interesting is that 
Like, in our world in 2015, people are not that into wilderness survival stuff. Like, there, there's not a lot of kids' books that people are super into that are just about somebody out in the woods surviving. It's almost right. like it, it was part of the, the consciousness, and now it's not that much anymore. Like, can you think of many things that are popular like that? It's all like wizards and superheroes and stuff now. Yeah, I mean, you know, Hunger Games and stuff has aspects of that. Right. But, but, but there's sort of... Mostly fire traps. And it's also, yeah, there's sort of uh, uh, science fiction and other elements laid on top of it. So, but, I mean, he doesn't come out of that dream at the beginning of the book going like, yeah, I got to leave the dome. He's he's like, that was fun. I want to do that again. Yeah. I think the the real trick is the the dream that you want to give people is not necessarily a totally accurate picture of what's outside the dome to the point where they don't need to go outside the dome in order to experience it, right? Right. I think they, you know, you have to give them something, something else. So, yeah, so there you go. You want the entertainment to be seductive enough that they want to consume it, but also to create some kind of social change. Right. So it's not necessarily trying to make outside look as awesome as possible because uh, then people will just keep going into your dream and having fun in this place. (laughs) And on a meta level, like this book didn't make me immediately necessarily want to go out into the wilderness, but it did a little bit. It did did make you, did it make you want to get rid of your phone? Uh, well, I read it on my phone. (laughs) I didn't actually, but I read it on a Kindle, which is not so different. I read it on my iPad. (laughs) So Yeah. But it did, but you know, there are beautiful descriptions of nature stuff. Like there's a part when they reach a a little nest with eggs in it that's quite lovely. So I think she was doing her part to try and sell it. How would they do? Well, for how would, uh, or how would I do and who I would be in this world? I think the dream creator position seems like pretty awesome. For one thing, it seems to be the only creative position in the arc, really. Uh, everybody else, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any form of art as we talk. We've talked about this before in other ones, but there doesn't seem to be, you know, any form of uh, art or theater or drama or uh, writing or anything like that. Everyone seems to be focused on, you know, the, the idea of sort of pure knowledge seems to be the big thing. But this one area is this one place where there's some sort of, fantasy type stuff that happens so being being someone who designs those seems like it'd be pretty neat because then obviously you could go into all the things that you design yeah it's cool that would definitely be where i would want to be i mean plus you're a lord so you know you're already top of the sort of food chain uh, especially if you don't you know know about all the horrible stuff <laughs> so you like to imagine yourself not knowing about stuff I yeah. feel like, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, you stole mine because I was also going to say, this is the one book where I would want to be the protagonist at the end. It sounds really cool mm. uh, to be a, a designer of dreams. I'm not saying that I want to be the protagonist. You know, I don't need, I don't need all the other stuff, you know, all the, all the horrible out being outside stuff. No need for that. But he's got some great stories, some great drinking stories. That's true. But I mean, this, the, I feel like the dreams I would design would not be, you know, hanging out outside the dome. They'd be cooler than that. It is a little funny to think of like two 14-year-old boys 
they can have any kind of virtual reality experience they want and they go on a camping trip. <laughs> yeah. I can think of a lot of things I would have rated above that when I was 14. I mean, of course, with all the all the other important moral choices and stuff in the book, of course, the part that's like, I want more information about this whole dream world. What's going on in this? How does it work? <laughs> do we what parts of it do you control? Is it full sensory experience? How does it hook into your brain? Where it's obviously, I don't think Monica Hughes was super interested in that aspect of it. It was just sort of a, a means yeah. to an end. Her, her, her message was that, was that this is the pablum, the valium that keeps the population down, this entertainment. We're like, where can we get some of that? Yeah, where can we get some of this? Pablum is delicious. <laughs> but okay. uh, anyway. Okay, so I'm gonna mine is slightly different then. I'd rather be Tommy because he's also got the moral high ground. He's not just a dream designer who's a lord. He's also like, I'm actually subverting the system from the inside. I'm actually helping out my buddies. I've got these cool friends who are savages, not savages, but slaves and whatnot. So his position at the end seems like an ideal moral one. He's super comfy, and yet he's also doing his part. So it it does feel almost a little too cozy, the ending of this book, that he gets to stay in the nice air-conditioned dome. Yeah, he pretty much gets everything. Like, he doesn't seem to be looking ahead to when the revolution comes in a few years' time, or there doesn't seem to be a plan for a revolution like, he doesn't think ahead to, like, oh, wait, what if I'm not privileged in the future? What if everybody, all the lords get on the bottom next time? It, it's assumed that they'll be, everything will be okay. Yeah, yeah. That was Devil on My Back by Monica Hughes from 1984. And I have to say, I'm glad we're doing books sometimes. Because, uh, yeah, they could be more thoughtful. Yeah, definitely. And just the process of uh, of reading as opposed to, you know, spending uh, however many hours reading a book as opposed to spending an hour and a half watching a movie just by its very nature of the process, a lot more, you have a lot more time to sort of think about it and a lot of, a lot more of this stuff kind of sinks in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely give us your ideas for books you'd like us to read on the Loading Ready Run forum. Mm -hmm. Ideally short books. Right. Young, <laughs> young adult books, ideally. Yeah. We're not doing infinite jest. <laughs> in two weeks time, we'll be doing The Giver. Yeah. Which is uh, a it is another uh, book that has been turned into a movie, but we'll be talking mostly about the uh, movie. Yeah, 
Yes, and this is a Loading Ready Run podcast. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this podcast. And remember that this podcast, as well as all of our podcasts and all the other content on LoadingReadyRun.com, is supported by our Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. The intro and outro theme is by Bradley Rains. Our interstitial bits are by uh, Kiara Kant. If you like the podcast, please rate us or uh, leave some comments on iTunes or in the Loading Ready Run forums at loadingreadyrun.com slash forums. Yeah, thanks for listening. And until next time, let the odds always be on your side. Close enough. Bye. Ci vediamo. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>